turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. All right, now I don't read this magazine, but I actually came across a little part of this article. It's from Good Housekeeping magazine, and the area of interest is the five most common things guests notice when you enter your home, okay? And so some of you who are not frequent note-takers, all of a sudden I saw the pens whip out like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. All right, what is it? Okay, and uh, not only, this is this uh, magazine, Good Housekeeping, they're not only going to point this out, but they actually have some tips on how to address this, all right? So if you're interested, you might want to pay attention. What do people notice when they walk into your home? First thing, they apparently spy mail and piles of mail lying around, okay? I guess they're looking to see if you've got bills like everybody else or something like that. And so they suggest that what you do is you keep an empty drawer, okay? This will help you make your house look sharp. Like, I can't imagine. Oh, you don't have any empty drawers. They can sometimes hardly get our drawers open. What do you just dump all your mail? Like, oh, we got that mail drawer. Second thing they notice, they notice dust bunnies. Uh, can anybody tell me what, how they ever came up with dust bunnies? Well, that combined. No one, I didn't. Makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, they notice dust bunnies and cobwebs. Okay, so you want to watch the room, corners, and stuff like that. You want to just keep this in mind. If you're about 5'4", okay, and you got folks that are coming in about a foot taller than you, they're going to notice some things that you're not seeing. Okay, just, just want to help you out as far as my good housekeeping little deal here. Um, another one, they, uh, they notice a messy bathroom, and so they suggest that you keep glass cleaner uh, for the mirror and other uh, handy cleanup aids for the floors and appliances. And I'll just let you figure out what that means. This is the one that was my favorite. I was like, you've got to be kidding. Okay. Apparently when guests walk into their house, uh, they notice if you have dirty dishes in the sink. Okay, I don't know. They walk in like, hey, let me go to the kitchen and look in there. Oh, and so this is what they recommend. This makes a lot of sense. Uh, just put them in the dishwasher. Duh. Okay, all right, my wife has been training me for years. And, but then they also said, or you can rinse them and you place them in the oven. What? I mean, what you, who would do that? Look, guests are coming over, you just pile all your dirty. Oh, what do you, that just makes no, what are you going to, and like preheat the oven for the cookies you're going to make for your guests? And what, I don't, Anyway, and then they had another one. They said that apparently they noticed full trash cans. So anyway, they said take care of that. I point this out to you. Not because, like, hey, if I ever come to your house, I don't want you freaking out, like, ah, he's going to be looking at the sink or anything like that. But I want you to know that just like when people walk into your home and they just happen to notice these things, and it's true, right? You kind of notice those things. When people walk into our lives, they start us noticing things about us. Now, I'm not just talking about the outward appearance, okay? But I'm talking when people start to get to know us beyond the superficial, a high at a grocery store but you actually get to know people, they actually notice characteristics about us. And especially if you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, that you say that you are a Christian, that you know Christ, people are going to want to see what does that look like in your life? What does Christian character really look like? If I could just give you one verse in the Bible as to what Christian character really looks like, it would be 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. You might want to put a mark by it or underline it because this really kind of is the essence of what does Christian character look like. Now, I want to tell you before we look at that verse that character counts. Who you are is really a reflection of what you believe. And who we are is demonstrated by how we live and people 
are interested in who you are and how you function, especially if you say that you are a Christian. Now, I want you to know that it's far easier to actually exhort people on your character. Okay, and this is what it should look like. It's, it's almost, it's so much more difficult to live it. And you and I, we, we know that. I was uh, reading about this uh, father who was giving his son a lecture. Apparently he thought his son could be trying a lot harder in school. Have you ever had that conversation at your house? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, dude, I just had that conversation with my parents two months ago. Okay, and apparently this dad, man, he had, he had come prepared for this conversation. And he goes, son, you're not studying the way you should. You know Abraham Lincoln when he was in your age? You know what he did? He didn't have computers. He didn't have electricity. He had to walk through all the snow. He had to walk 15 miles to the library, and he walked all uphill getting there. And then he got those books, and he checked them out, and then he had to walk all the way uphill getting back to his house. And he got back to his house so he could sit by his fireplace and he could study said, if you're going to be like Abraham Lincoln, you've got to be and follow his patterns. Because you're 15, and that's what he did when you were. That's what, he was 15, and that's what he did, and that's what you need to do now that you're 15 years old. And the boy's just like trying to process all this, and he's thinking it through. And then he's like, you know, okay. And, you know, Dad, I, so if he did that when he's 15, then when Abraham Lincoln was your age, he was the president of the United States. And he's like, you know, I'm like, you know, can't you just see the dad? Like, hey, stop confusing me with the facts. You know what I'm saying? You know, let's keep moving. You know, I'll do the talking. You do the listening kind of lecture, right? It's, it's far easier to exhort people on Christian character. But it's, it's another to live it. And I'm coming to you as a fellow learner, okay? I probably have more failures than successes. But I tell you, the verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, has been for years kind of like a guidepost that God has used to continue to, like, this is the work the Holy Spirit is seeking to accomplish in your life. And it says simply this. You might even want to memorize it. Verse 12. Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And so when he comes to this verse, he just says, as he's talking about what does it look like to be a Christian leader, he makes this huge statement. Let no one look down upon your youthfulness. Now, when Timothy met Paul uh, during Paul's second missionary journey, he was about 20 years old. Paul picked him up, and he had, by this time he had traveled with Paul for about 15 years. So Timothy is right around probably his mid-30s. And Paul is still exhorting, let no one look down upon your youthfulness. And just like in, in the Greek, the Roman culture, if you had age, you had esteem. And I just want to tell you something. If you're young, no one's going to hand you respect on a platter. Respect always has to be earned. Okay? People don't mind you being young or even youthful. What they do have a huge problem with is immaturity. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I, I know you're young and you're still looked upon as young, but you don't want anyone to look down upon you because you were young. And so he says, I'm going to get real specific. I'm going to highlight five specific areas. You want to see the Lord Jesus put his life on display in yours. And so he starts giving the traits of a Christ-centered life. And he begins by saying, don't let anybody look down upon your youthfulness, but rather the first thing in your 
speech. You know, your words, they create impressions immediately. When people enter into your life, they start hearing the things that you talk about, even how you say it. Whether if you're young and how you refer to your parents, your siblings, teachers, coaches, the things that you talk about. I mean, immediately they're starting to draw impressions and it happens almost instantly. The first impression is what you look like. And then as soon as you start opening your mouth, do you know that your mouth is a window to your soul? Your mouth reveals what's going on in your heart. And you know how I know that? Because Jesus said it and he made it crystal clear. He said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He said, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The good man, you know what he does? Out of the good treasure of his heart, he brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, he brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks from that which fills your heart. And so if you and I are identifying with Jesus, that is to be reflected in how we speak. You want to be real careful that you don't develop patterns of lying. Talking about things that are vulgar, inappropriate, or you're... You use your mouth to tear people down. And it's really, it it becomes like an easy pattern to slip into. Rather, you want to make sure that you're using your speech to put Jesus on display. If you ever wanted a great study on how powerful your tongue is, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 kind of accentuate that. You can use your mouth for great good or for great destruction. You can use your mouth to actually share the gospel with people so that they actually come to know Christ. You can use your mouth just like you probably just did, worshiping and praising God. But do you know that you can also use that same tongue to totally tear people apart and rip them down? It's kind of like James said in James chapter 3, verse 5. So also your tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Or think of it this way. One tree can produce a million matches. And one match can burn down a million trees. That's kind of your your tongue. It's extremely powerful. You can use it to build up. You can use it to encourage. And you can use it to completely destroy. And it leaves a path of destruction. You know how they talk about, you know, like, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Come on. You recover from your bruises, right? You wipe out, bite it, get hurt. But you don't recover. Even break some bones, you recover. But some of the things that come out of people's mouths, they last a lifetime, and they're like poisonous. You want, are you identifying with Jesus? Christ is seeking to have your speech edify him. And you, what you want to do is you want to learn how to develop depth and wisdom in your conversation. And the only way that happens is you've developed depth and wisdom in your soul. You, you move beyond the superficial. It's one thing to be the life of the party and be a quick wit and always have something funny to say. And that's fine in certain scenarios, but you want to be a man or a woman of maturity. And that's always reflected in your speech. You want to learn how to use your tongue to encourage, to lift people up. Like Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, you want your speech to be like seasoned as with salt so that it may give grace to those who hear. That you're an encourager that you build people up, that you learn to use your speech for the building and the edification of people. And let me also tell you with your mouth, you show respect to folks. George Washington, uh, he was right when he said, quote, when a younger man and older man are conversing, 
The older man must never mention that he is older, and the younger man must never forget it. When you're speaking, if you're young, you're youthful, meaning anybody that's older than you, you always address them with respect. It's one of the ways you put Jesus on display. And friends, guess what? You're going to have lots of opportunity in lunchrooms, locker rooms, dorm rooms. You're going to have lots of opportunity to put Jesus on display with your words. And the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So Paul says, listen, don't let anybody look down upon you because you're young. Rather, in your speech, and then the second trait he gives, your conduct. Speech, conduct. Conduct is your behavior. And how you behave reveals what you believe. And so what you want to do is conduct yourself in such a way that you are life-giving versus life-draining. That there is joy, there's a peace, there's a stability in your life because you're resting in the sure foundation of Jesus. You look different because of your relationship with him, and frankly, you function different. That means there's you you think through how you live and the things that you're doing. And the Spirit of God, he wants to put Christ on display. And so you remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23? He says, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what the Spirit of God is seeking to bring out in you. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness. Did you hear that? Kindness? Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And here's a huge one when it comes to conduct. Self-control. Do you know where self-control comes from? It comes from the Spirit of God. And so when you feel like you're out of control, and when you're young, you may feel like you're out of control a lot, ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me? Would you produce this fruit in my life? And he assures you he will. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. And it goes beyond just some of this that we identify as fruit. fruit. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but there's things like emotional control, showing a willingness to reconcile or to forgive, um, how you honor people in relationships, being generous, exercising discernment, having wisdom. All of this shows up in your conduct. So what you want to do, once every once in a while, just try to evaluate, does your conduct match up with like Philippians 4, 8. Remember, that's the verse that says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, is, is what you're doing, is it truthful? Whatever is honorable, is it right? Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, this is a good reputation, this is honorable. He says, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is the grid. Every once in a while, it's just like, Kind of throw out some of the things that you do, whether it's the shows that you watch or the conversations you're having or what you're doing. If it doesn't fit in that grid, like that can't, it's not totally not honorable. It's okay. It's not loving. Then this is the sort of thing that needs to be cut. Not even curtailed. It needs to be cut. Now, one of the things you do not want to end up is you don't want to end up like this next guy. In fact, I got the slide here. You don't want to end up looking like this guy. Anybody recognize him? Now, I'm not talking about his hair because there's some similarities there. Okay, now, you see this guy here? Who, anybody know who that is? Eddie Haskell, that's right. In the late 1950s, early 60s, there was this show called Leave it to Beaver, okay? So on Netflix, you probably could find this. And, and, you know, Eddie Haskell, this guy, man, when the adults were around, man, he could turn it on, man. He could make it shine. He was, like, just super, uh, like, 
complimentary and super respectful. Like, you know, he'd go, that is the lovely dress you're wearing, Mrs. Cleaver. You know, and she's like, you know. But then as soon as the adults were gone, man, the guy flipped to who he really was. His true colors started flying, and he was going to, like, beat on Beaver or something like that. He always was scheming to plan to do something wrong. And yet as soon as adults came up, ah, he knew how to turn it on. He had that charm, all that respect, and it was like a little button that he used to manipulate and to deceive. Come on. You want to be the genuine, real thing. Especially if you're young, do not develop patterns of being two-faced where you can turn it on when it's the appropriate time, but as soon as you think the coast is clear, you'll let it rip. No. Paul says, don't let anyone look down upon your youthfulness, rather in speech and your conduct. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Let me give you a third one here. Notice what he says here. The next trait that he highlights is love. Wow, this is huge. Show what loving God really looks like. And, you know, like, I mean, the world is kind of waiting. What does it look like when a young person loves God? Because I'll tell you, when you let a love for God be kind of like your defining characteristic, man, it makes waves. It is highly attractive. When I started seeing this as a non-Christian in high school, when I actually saw someone who really loved God, I didn't think like, man, what a joke. Get a life. I was like, that person has something I absolutely don't have. And not only is it a love for God, but when you love God, really, your, your heart is for him. You think great thoughts of God. You rejoice in the, the love and the forgiveness in his presence. That gets translated to a love for other people. You actually break out of your self-centered patterns. We're actually engaging others. You actually are interested in them and how well they're doing. In fact, that's the type of love that is being referenced here. Agape love is a love that is committed to the best interests of others. And the only way you can break out of self-centeredness is to have Christ-centeredness. And when it's all about Jesus, guess what? We can actually really love people freely. In fact, it's cool. It's a lot of fun. But that old mask and that old man always wants to come back on like, come on now. You don't want to be friendly. You don't want to be like that. Paul says, you know what? Let your love shine. Put Jesus on display. I can tell you this. You can do some awesome things, and you can do it without love. And Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, you absolutely don't want to be kind of a clinging symbol like that. Or like he says this, you know what? If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, is that a cool deal, feeding the poor? Yeah. And if I surrender my body to be burned, like you're willing to lay it all on the line. Wow. But he says this, but do not have love. It profits me nothing. See, God wants us to be genuine. He wants our behavior driven by a real, authentic love for him and for others. It's freeing. It's life-giving. It's the life of Christ being lived out in his people. He says, show yourself in your love an example of what it looks like to believe. You know, going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know how it says it starts defining love? And you, and you hear it. And like, if you go to weddings, and you're going to probably hear this, right? And they read that. Well, do this. Don't tune out like, huh, I've heard that a hundred times. Take love, or the next time you read it in Scripture, like now, and take that little noun 
and put your little name in there. And so it reads, love. Or could we put Grant is patient. Sally is kind and is not jealous. Put your name in there. Kelly does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It has the idea of inappropriately. It does not seek its own. You are not provoked. You do not take into account a wrong suffered. That's love. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Do you? Put your name in there. You bear all things. You believe all things. You hope all things. And you endure all things. What is distinctly specific to Christian love is the willingness to self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. You want an example of that? You only have to look at Jesus, who, who just basically said, greater love than no man has this, than one laid down his life for his friends. He says, I love you, and I'm going to do just that. And so when you see Jesus laying it all on the line and paying the price for our sin, accepting God's full just wrath against sin, when they laid him down on those beams, he went willingly because he was laying his life down for us. And he says, follow me. Let me give you a fourth trait of a Christ-centered life. And he points it out here. I want you to show what faith really looks like. Let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith. Faith is your reliance upon the living God. It's literally taking God at his word What does it look like to believe? Show. Don't be afraid. Don't always just, man, I am hiding this. And you can develop this pattern really early on. Like, man, the last thing I want is anybody to know that I'm a Christian. I just want to blend into the crowd. Okay? And I'm not going to do something probably like drastically wrong or sinful. But, man, I am going to be like a chameleon and I'm going to match this woodwork. Whatever it looks like. And I'm always trying to fit in because, after all, fitting in is what's most important. Prior to knowing Christ, fitting in probably was everything. But now that you know him, you are free. And you now can put Jesus on display. You don't want to be obnoxious. You want to be genuine and real. What does it look like to put Jesus on display? What does it look like to live by faith? To know with certainty that you have eternal life, that you have been forgiven of your sins, to live by faith that you could actually share the gospel with your words or draw it out on a piece of paper. And what does it look like to live by faith, to find Jesus as your continual source of strength and renewal? Don't get the idea that, well, I just a Christian is someone who believes a few particular truths about Jesus. Check, got that, and then I try to make it up and do life on my own. Actually, the Christian always keeps coming back to Jesus because you're always going to find that your well needs to be filled and there's only one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And so some of the things that I've found helpful to cultivate faith are to try to relate prayer, learning to talk with God as I go through my day, okay? I mean, there, there's a lot of 10-second, 30-second conversations between me and God. And, I, and I've learned to do this especially when the day is not going well or there's a lot of important things that I'm involved in. 
Before I meet with people, I try to pray. I, before I, I engage in something that's, that I feel like, man, I need wisdom way beyond my years, I want to pray. But even some of the mundane things, if we can learn to cultivate communicating with God. And let me tell you something else that encourages faith. It's learning to treasure God's word. It's like, like it says in Psalm 119 about treasuring, finding this like, man, this is a joy. This is awesome. Think rightly about scripture. And as we treasure God's word, you're going to find that your faith is going to grow. And just one other thing about faith. You want to make sure that you pick your closest friends carefully. We're called to love everybody, okay? And by God's grace, we can. Not just tolerate them, love them. But pick your closest friends carefully. Find friends that encourage you spiritually, that are life-giving, that they take their walk with God seriously, that it can ask you hard questions, that you're a person that can relate to others, and that they're interested in you doing well with Jesus which gets translated to doing well in life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful. Because after all, we want to put Jesus on display. We want to show what it looks like to believe. And then the fifth trait, he says, let no one look down upon your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. I want you to show yourself an example of those who believe. Purity has the idea that in sexual matters and in your thoughts, how you handle your body and your mind and your emotions, Jesus wants to be put on display here. Now, this is, this is huge he actually seems to make a strong emphasis because you go to chapter 5, he again emphasizes this, this idea of purity. Now, think about where Timothy is living. He's pastoring. Don't get the idea like, oh, if you're a pastor, man, God has this little bubble he puts around you and you are totally immune to any temptation, right? No. We're all people, right? And where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. Ephesus is kind of like the capital of immorality, Okay. It is bad news. There's all sorts of bad stuff that is going on, and they have actually a religious temple dedicated to just that. And we've already talked about that, so I don't need to go into any more description into that. But so Timothy is functioning and living in that kind of culture. He is always facing those kind of temptations. It's probably not a lot different than what it looks like to live today. They're out there. And so he says, I want you to show Jesus on display by the purity of your life. And purity of life always begins with purity of heart. Okay? We think it's about environment. Environment has something to do with it. But most importantly, it's, it's your heart. The orientation of your heart. Purity of life begins with purity of heart. And you want to have a healthy relationship with Jesus. And you want to have a healthy perspective on sex, and that it is a God-given gift in the context of a committed marriage. It's, it's great, it's glorious, and it's been given by God. But anytime that perspective gets warped, what happens is it all gets twisted. And we got people, let me tell you, this is annihilating and creating great devastation in the church because we don't even know what to do with this. In fact, it's like this. The church, in some respects, has shown up to a gunfight with a knife. 
We're just not prepared. Our people aren't prepared, and we're paying heavy tuition on this. The bleeding and the hemorrhaging is it's bad. And so I, I want to make sure that you know how to face off with the dangers of temptation. And it is widespread. I mean, you've got Internet pornography. You've got YouTube. If you think like, oh, oh, YouTube, that's all just nice, you know, and just some fun, silly little videos, there is plenty of stuff on there that is extremely wicked, very immoral. Don't go, oh, I've got to go check this out. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous for your kids, your grandkids. And we've got movies that are out there that are highly immoral. And we see this on TV, and it's just, it's like it becomes commonplace because the more and more that we just keep seeing it and hearing it, it's like this is normal. You know, right now, like a generation ago, what appeared on TV, like, like what we, they would call shocking, like this is just crazy. I can't believe that this is even being produced. This is an art. This is grossly immoral. You know what that's called today, by the way? It's called PG-13, okay? And so I want you to know how to face off with temptation because Jesus wants to be put on display through your purity. And this is a huge issue. So let me just say, how do you overcome the dangers of temptation? First, develop a deep awareness of God's continual presence. Man, that is so good to know that Jesus is with you. That the Lord is right here in your midst. You are never alone. When you start thinking that you're alone, man, that is all, that's, that's like the entrance for all sorts of temptation. No one will know. Don't keep God out of the picture. He is actually right here. In fact, if you're a Christian, Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. Ephesians 3.17. So remember, he's with you. And what you want to do is you want to be so satisfied with God that when temptation rears its ugly head, and it's going to happen, it's just not that alluring because you're finding your joy and your satisfaction in Jesus. And so what you want to do is trust him and the power of his presence. Let me give you a second. Have convictions before the crisis. Have convictions before the crisis. Encountering temptations is not a sin, okay? A the word temptation or trial is actually the same Greek word. It's our response to it. If you give into it and you bite into that lure, well, indeed, it was a temptation because it took you into sin. On the other hand, it's a test to show that Jesus was indeed stronger than the temptation, and your focus on him got you through that. Encountering temptation, that's not a sin. It's when you engage that temptation, that's when it becomes a sin. And so when we talk about convictions, convictions isn't just something that you hold. It's something that holds you. And so don't think that you're going to get your convictions figured out in the heat of the moment. It's, it's probably not going to happen. Hormones, other drives are going to kick in. You've got to settle your convictions before the fight. And it will be a fight, won't it? And so figure it out. You might want to write it out. What exactly do you really believe when it comes to the area of purity? Uh, by the way, our temptations, they actually reveal our beliefs, what you really believe. Let me give you a, a third little principle. Know that love involves loyalty. Do you know that love involves loyalty? When you say that you love God, if it's more than words, that means that there's a loyalty to him. Do you know that? Love involves loyalty. That also is true 
uh, about people you're in relationship with. Love involves loyalty. If you think that sexual sin or your voyeurism into pornography or whatever that might be is like, well, that's just me and my own personal issue, and it's not going to affect anybody. You are dead wrong. Not only does it wage war in your own soul, it affects how you function and how you behave. It affects all the relationships around you. And the closer you are to that person, the more they are affected. And you're like, well, what are you, what are you talking about, Grant? Well, I'll just tell you from my observation as being a pastor and having to deal with these issues, I've seen grown men and women prostrate on the floor, crying with stuff coming out of their nose and mouth. They could, they're just completely undone. Why? Because the spouse or the boyfriend or the girlfriend hadn't thought this through. Love involves loyalty. And let me give you, that leads into a fourth principle. Don't be callous when it comes to sin. Do not be callous when it comes to sin. You know how a callous is developed, right? You know, you just keep going over the rough stuff. Eventually you kind of develop some thick skin. God doesn't want that to happen to your heart or your soul. Don't be callous when it comes to sin. You know what, you know, when you see a certain scene, do you know that there is called the off button? Hit it. Something flashes across there, get away from it. Turn it off. If you were a parent, you better model this for your kids. Because if you don't, they're like, "Eh." they watch you and you're like glued into that. Guess what? They are following your footsteps, but they will take that exponentially set the pattern Um, know this know that when we are concerned with god's glory we will be careful to avoid sin your life isn't actually about you it's about god and his glory in fact remember paul says i want you to put jesus on display i want you to be an example you want to be smart enough to stay away from the source be smart enough to stay away from the source If this bites, this creates destruction, please, come on, think about it. Stay away from it. And then, seventh, remember it's better to flee than to fall. Remember Joseph, Potiphar's wife, making all those overtures? Just, man, just right out there with her temptation. Joseph lost his coat, but he did not lose his character. This is a huge issue. Let me give you something to be real helpful. Could, could I get an agreement on this? That when you're facing your temptation, whatever it might be, your battle, can you give God 10 seconds? Uh, that's all I'm asking. Give God 10 seconds before you engage and indulge, before you buy in and bite on that lure. Just 10 seconds. God, here I am and here's this. Lord, would you, would you help me to wisdom here. What, what would you want me to do? I think God can get through your heart in 10 seconds. And know this, there is always a way out. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There is always a way out. And so what happens when you sin? And who of us hasn't? Huh? Well, let us go to Jesus. Let me tell you, that's 
after we sin, Satan wants to use that guilt to drive a wedge between you and God. He can't separate you for eternity. He can't separate you from the life that you have in him. But he can sure make your life on this earth miserable. And he uses guilt as a wedge. Don't let him do it. And how you fight that battle, and it's a serious one, is you learn to run to Jesus with your sin. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why does he make such a big deal about this? Because Paul says, I want you to show yourself an example of those who believe. What does it look like when you hold on to Jesus for life, forgiveness, for strength, for security, for peace? I don't care if you're young. He says, I want Jesus put on display in your life. The greatest leadership tool there is, is the power of an exemplary life. Are you a leader? Are you a parent? Are you leading, coaching kids? Are you leading with our kids, our children, college kids, our fellowship family? You know how you lead best? You lead by example. Are you going to be preaching these things? Before you start preaching, you need to be living. They want to see it on display. And the New Testament has a lot of emphasis it gives on leaders in action by being an example. So let me just ask you, what kind of example are you leaving? I read this story. I believe it's fictitious, although it didn't say that it was. But there was apparently this lady who was tailgating. This guy happens to be the postmaster. They were going home from work. And he hit this yellow light, and apparently he was not groomed with Waco traffic. And so he stopped. You know, I don't know if you know that. But you see the yellow? That doesn't mean gun it, all right? That means to clear the intersection, all right? If you're in it, get out of it. And if you're not in it, don't like, oh, if I hit 75, I ought to get through before that semi. No, you stop, right? Well, he does. Well, this lady that was tailgating, she just comes unglued, rolls down the window, starts cursing him out, lays on the horn, just making a huge scene. And she's going after this guy, and he's sitting there at the light, you know. And all of a sudden, a police officer comes up to the lady who's tearing him up, knocks on her car, and actually has her get out, and he arrests her. And apparently takes her down, fingerprints her, books her, and actually puts her in a holding tank to cool down. Then he realized that there had been a big mistake. So he goes, he pulls her out, and he goes, you know, ma'am, I'm very sorry. I, I made a mistake. He said, you know, I noticed that you had the, this bumper sticker, like, follow me to Sunday school. You had uh, this around your license plate, what would Jesus do? And you had that chrome little Christian fish thing. And I, I watched your behavior. I just assumed that the car had been stolen. <laughs> I mean, there's just no other explanation. Come on. How did you function that way? Friends, let me tell you this. If you say that you follow Christ, people rightfully expect that you're going to look something like him. They rightfully expect it. In fact, they are looking for it. I just recently read an article from The Atlantic, and it was from June's issue. And they had this, this article. It was fascinating. Listening to Young Atheists, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity. And so the author of this, he actually launched a nationwide campaign where they're engaging atheist college students. And he actually went to two organizations, the Secular Student Alliances and the Free Free Thought Societies. And he actually interviewed college students from all over the nation that identified them as atheists. And he went after the ones that were hardcore. I mean, they're actually atheists that proselytize toward their way of thinking. And so he wanted to get to know them and, and find out what they're thinking. And one of them was a gal named Stephanie. She's a student at Northwestern. And she said this. This is very interesting. 
She said the connection between Jesus and a person's life was not clear. She never saw the connection. Or another college student was a guy by the name of Michael. And he said this, listen to this, quote, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life. And you would want to change the lives of others. And I haven't seen too much of that. You see, that's what people are looking for, aren't they? They're looking for an example of what it looks like to believe. I'm reminded of uh, that Scottish philosopher, David Hume. He was a skeptic, totally didn't believe in Christ, the gospel. And one time he was found in an audience listening to George Whitfield, the great evangelist in the first great awakening. So this is in the 1730s, 1740s. Okay, Whitfield is the guy with the really cool hair that goes over his ears like that. Okay, and that's that's our man over there, the skeptic David Hume. And someone came up to him and he said, "I thought you didn't believe in the gospel." And Hume says, "I don't." But he nodded to Whitfield and said, "But he does, and that's why I'm here." Friends, the world is looking. The people that made the most impression in my life before I was a Christian were those who authentically exemplified Jesus. My mentors in life are those who put Jesus on display, and they did it with this verse. So friends, be 100% in. Keep Christ at the center of your life, and let your life speak. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. God, only you can do this work It is the work of the Spirit. It is the work of Jesus. Father, if we have sinned, we confess it. And we ask, Father, that you would put the life of Jesus on display in us. Would you do it? Because we can't. But would you do it for your glory? Would you change and transform our world? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.